moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome back to Cascading Leadership. We are rolling with episode two of the James Daberman story. I am your host, Jim Canitrero. And I'm your other host, Lawrence Brown. Hello, Lawrence Brown. Hello, Jim. (laughs) We're going to play the hello game now. And James, we are happy to have you back to continue the story. Welcome back. Great to be back. Thanks again for uh, the opportunity. It was a great conversation and figured that it was going to be pretty pretty in-depth. And and for those who haven't checked out James's first episode, make sure you go to your favorite podcast platform and download the episode. It's got a great story. And to get everybody caught up on the last episode, we talked through the very humble beginnings that James had as the son of Haitian immigrants growing up poor in New York, some of the ad hoc community that he built around him, or actually his, his mom helped build around him that shaped his educational journey. We talked about what he learned when he was in the military. And then we wrapped the last episode with the the conversation about the bucket list that he had formed and his journey to start the grad school process. Under most circumstances, all of that stuff that I just talked about would be like what an average person covers in their entire life. But we haven't even gotten to the stuff that James has done from a career professional perspective. And that's what a lot of the episode two is going to be about. So Buckle up for a really fun conversation, and it's going to be a lot of lessons that we're going to take away from it. James, as per the last episode, you got a lot of pressure on you. You better hold up to your end of the bargain and make sure that you're not letting this intro go to waste. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I I can feel it, but I'm ready. Lawrence, I think you should probably throw in one of those deep voice in an age when blah, blah, blah happens. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing more from James. I think to your point, the first part, there were a lot of learns. And so if you haven't had the opportunity to listen yet, please definitely do so. And with that, I'll let James go ahead and get started with telling us the second part of his amazing journey. Let me pose a question to you, James, r- real quick. I- I'm starting at the ending. You ended up going to grad school at Tuck. Right. But walk us through your thinking when you were going through the grad school search process. How did you figure out where you wanted to go? What were you putting high on the list as decision criteria? Okay. Yeah. I'll paint the picture for you. So I've got a 94th percentile GMAT in my back pocket. Not that you're bragging or anything. Uh, No, no. That's that's monster. Not not that I'm bragging or anything. No, no. That is monster. I I earned it. That's why I'm bragging. I spent 10 months and almost all of 2011 just preparing. And it was great to see a a reward at the end of that rainbow. And it opened up, as I mentioned before, different type of school. And so I started touring the country, visiting these top programs. And at this point, I was a little cocky. But then it started to dawn on me that I didn't realize 
or I, I didn't understand, or I didn't know what went into the actual application process. So I would show up on a campus, other minority candidates, and they were coming in from programs like Inroads and uh, MLT. And, and some of them had a privileged backgrounds and had grown up in prep schools together. Some of them recognized each other. I was a complete outsider at all of these different events. I noticed many of them were a second generation African or, or international. And, and so it was just a new world that was opening up to me that I hadn't really factored in. And then I realized I didn't know how I was going to pay for it, which echoed the experience I had in undergrad. And, and I certainly didn't have enough army money left over to, you know, to finance that undertaking. And so you know, I had a lot of questions. And that once again, that's the beauty of having networks around you, which are ad hoc support systems. And you'll notice that this is a story essentially about networking, because I've gone from my military network, which helped me get a full-time job that put me through school. Then when I was in an undergrad, I joined a fraternity. So I had that network. And I also had my wealthy Jewish network as well. When I was in school and my professors who all supported me as well. So I had networks there just from the undergrad experience. And then now I was undertaking the B-School process. And so I leaned heavily into my fraternity network for guidance and instructions on how to navigate the B-School process. I had a lot of brothers who you know, had done their MBAs previously and, and had been in top programs. And they were you know, giving me pointers on writing applications, pointers on interviewing and what the process would entail, pointers on telling my actual story and, and creating a transitional roadmap from business school to my career, because these schools want to want to know that you'll represent them well. Or they want to put you in front of an employer and say, okay, this kid is not going to embarrass us. So it doesn't matter what your stats are at that point. It matters what your EQ is at that point. And so I was having these discussions, you know, with very successful brothers, and I didn't have to spend a few grand hiring a consultant to prepare my application. I had all of this knowledge in-house ready and waiting for me. To their credit, these brothers made themselves available for me, read over my apps, referred me to other brothers who'd been through it. And so that gradually built my confidence throughout the process. And so once again, networking will save your life in some cases. And when I say networking, some people get an image of a fast-talking, hustling type who just wants to meet people and use them. I, I don't mean that at all. What networking really is just taking in an actual interest in people who have different experiences and coming to the realization that there's a thing or two you can learn from them. If you treat people that way, I'm thankful for people who've introduced me to certain musicians, certain business etiquette. It was one of my army colleagues who taught me how to tie a tie, for example. And I remember this, I was 19 years old. And if you take that interest in people, or if you meet people who take an active interest in you and feel that maybe they can learn something from you, you just build a relationship off that. And this B-School process made me realize just how much of an advantage networks are in more affluent communities, because they go hard in the paint when it comes to networking. They, you know, when their kids are in prep school, the whole idea is that the, their kids are going to network together. Why do you think country clubs exist? All of these are just ways that they reinforce their networks. They keep the knowledge within their systems and they keep the money rolling and they keep knowledge rolling. And so that's what I really wanted to overcome. I, I like to reference what's known as the asymmetrical distribution of knowledge. When I talk about how some people are in the know and just know what to do from a young age, they've had constant exposure. And then there are people who have to learn along the way. And you're not going to get there without having strong networks or strong support systems to get you there. And once again, it doesn't matter what your background is, what your social class is. You want to embed yourself in with people who will be able to teach things. And, and that's what I did there in that. And so not to go too far off tangent, but I just wanted to point out how this is really essentially a story of how networks have maintained me at every different life step. I would say, James, that I'm happy that you delineated actually what networking is because what I've what I've heard when talking with people is that's exactly what they think networking is this slick talking sort of thing. And it's that you're always in a position where you're asking there is some insidious reason behind it. 
But what you said is, I think, a great way of saying it, that it's really about that community building. When you were leaning on the assistance of your fraternity brothers, and you had talked a little bit about the folks that you had met while you were in the MBA program. We're definitely getting there. That's I think that's the, the best part of the story for me. I was firmly on path. To, and I started narrowing down a list based on a set of criteria. I knew I wasn't going to go to school in New York because I didn't want to be a broke grad student living in, in a major city. So I was already thinking suburban, small. I also didn't want to be in a place that was too crowded or too busy. I wanted to ensure that I had, there's a nice faculty student ratio. I'd have resources at my disposal. I, I basically wanted to recreate something similar to undergrad in, in, in the levels of support I would have. Fortunately, what you come to realize quickly is that the MBA at that level isn't really an academic exercise so much as it is an exercise in creating a network or expanding your professional network. Because all the other students there, they're going to go on and be leaders in organizations, and you'll learn quite a bit from them. They come from a various backgrounds. There's an international, there's a big international contingent. And of course, the alumni of the school are going to be people that you speak with frequently who give you insights into what the industry you want to go to is like. And so I narrowed it down to Tuck, mainly for three reasons. The first was they have a reputation for having one of the top two or three networks in B-School. Two, they were the first to accept me. And the acceptance letter started pouring in. I'd already been enthralled, but I was in constant contact with the students from there. And they really made an effort to reach out to me and make me feel welcome. And they started, even before I made a decision, they started giving me career advice. And I always go where the network is strongest. Or I always go where the love is, is what I like to tell people in parlance. And third reason is at that level, pretty much all these schools are the same. And so I looked at the job statistics and the salary range. It was right in my ballpark. You've been very humble in sharing your story. So we kind of we were joking about the idea of being very proud of being in a 94th percentile. At the same point, though, you've exercised this great amount of humility in terms of, of building your, your network. And so... I just want to call out that a lot of times we think counter that it's it's about let me show how big I am and that sort of thing. But you actually are executing uh, a humility piece and being able to build your community. How important do you think that is for folks as they're looking to do that? Oh, it's hugely important. You definitely have to be humble, but you have to know what you don't know. It takes a combination of experience and what I like to call just natural curiosity. I think there are two traits that can easily be developed in any individual that will get the ball rolling for you. The first is you have to enjoy learning just for the sake of it. And so that's when you find people who may have an interesting or appealing background, and then you just soak up the knowledge right then and there. You can't be afraid to ask for help if you're intellectually curious. And I always tell people, in some people, it's very innate, but in others, I, I like to say, if you're ever reading an article and you say to yourself, this is interesting, don't stop there. Do a deeper dive. Spend a weekend on Wikipedia, just clicking additional links on a topic you're interested in. And the next thing you know, you'll be immersed in it. But just having that curiosity is what opens you up to connecting with people. And in my case, having also worked in sales, I knew what the steps were in terms of building rapport and, and opening people. I see a potential community whenever I make a connection with someone. I see a potential means of support and vice versa. And of course, I'll do what I can for them. I always you know, pay it forward. The second thing that I think you need to have is you have to be willing to embrace the unfamiliar. We get settled into our routines fairly quickly. The human brain is adaptable. And so there's resistance there when the possibility of blowing up your whole life and starting over or making a major move, there's always an apprehensiveness and an anxiety there. But as you do it more and more often, you embrace the unfamiliar, that opens you up to learning on a scale that's unprecedented. Because as I said before, you can learn from anyone. You're willing to be in environments that you're not accustomed to. 
you're willing to stretch yourself, you're willing to engage with folks. And once you have that comfort with the unfamiliar, and and then you you take those two things and you add a dose of humility on top of it, people are generally warm if they see that you're interested in their lives. That's just common sense, normal part of human dynamics. You're just leveraging it to a particular end. And the thing is, you won't be the only one that benefits, I promise you, because whatever you impart to people, who, because people will want to know about where you come from. And that's how we ended up here on this show. Those are phenomenal points that you make, James. There's a couple of things that I want to tie together. I was brought up in a way where you don't ask for help. You have to maintain appearances that you have all things under control and that you have a firm grip on all sorts of other things. And that's completely contrary to your point about there's an asymmetrical distribution of knowledge. I I wish that was something that was mentioned to me as I was growing up, because it would have put me in a position where I would have built the necessary humility to ask for help and accept help when it was given. And I think that's an important lesson to pass along in general. There's nothing wrong with asking for help. There's nothing wrong in asking questions. And that's got to be actually normalized as part of the career growth or personal growth experience. The other thing that I want to tie this back to was when you brought back the whole concept of the bucket list, that's building your own vision for what the next X amount of years looks like and what you needed to accomplish. Tell us a little bit more about how that bucket list shaped how you move forward and the purpose that it served in terms of experientially exposing you to things that you weren't familiar with and also things that you just wanted to do. How did that stretch yourself? How important is it to build your own version of a bucket list so you have some goals and objectives that you want to cross off as you go through this journey? I think I'd read an article somewhere years ago about goals and the fact that if you'd actually committed them to paper, your chances of going through and executing increased tremendously. I had nothing to lose at that point. So I remember having read that. I said, oh, what's the worst that could happen? And the great thing about it is it's also a way to give you positive reinforcement. You won't necessarily achieve or accomplish every single item on there, but you will accomplish a few things and you build on each one. For me, Eureka hit when you know I started studying Spanish late in life. I flew out to Guatemala. I did an immersion program, lived with a family, several weeks, a couple months go by, and I start to get proficient. And I remember being in a cafe and translating for this family of American tourists. And I said, oh, wow, I should really run with this. And then eventually I was able to master it. And then I said, you know what? Let's do Portuguese next since the two languages are pretty similar. So the thing is, you're able to build on each new skill that you acquire. So it reinforces your ability to learn things. It gives you more confidence going in and it makes it much less daunting the next item that you have. Because eventually I said, you know what? I should just start prepping. I should just start prepping for the GMAT because I put that off way too long. And then you become very nonchalant about your approach. You're not inhibited by limited thinking and fear obviously plays much less of a role then because you've already got this other set of things that you've done. And that is is what the purpose of the bucket list is. I think Lawrence referred to it as chunking, but yeah, yeah. you know, if you want to put a name to it. And so, yes, chunk your way to the top, please. So for uh, anyone that is uh, listening to James and hearing what he just said, what in the world am I doing with my life? You're not alone. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing, this intentionality. And and I cannot stress how important that is when you look at the different elements that you've talked about. And I just think it's absolutely fascinating. Appreciate that. But once again, you just have to be comfortable with unfamiliar surroundings. So I give James grief 
brief about this. Uh, everybody's familiar with the most interesting man campaign that I think it was Dosetti's that ran. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they totally have been NSA spying on your life, James, and then just had some bearded guy <laughs> do the commercials. For, for those that are listening to the episode and have tracked James down on LinkedIn, he's definitely somebody that you need to connect with. And as much as we talk about each of us had experiences where somebody opened our eyes to what's possible and where you could go. James is that sort of person. And you certainly need to connect with him and and get into that network because there's so much stuff between those ears that you should listen to. Sorry, I'm totally turning into a fanboy about you. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's scary. Uh, But no, just for context, I've got 101 items on that list. Over the last 10 years, I've crossed off about I've crossed off 75. So I've gotten through sounds, three quarters of it. And, and it just gets easier with time. Sounds like you need to start building up a new list there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for walking us through that. Now, grad school is grad school. I think a lot of people are familiar with the experience, but you're talking about a whole different ballgame when you're talking about a top 10 program. What, what were the biggest things that you learned that you didn't realize through that grad school experience that changed your mindset or your views on how the go forward direction should look? Once I set foot on campus, I immediately realized just how out of my depth that I was. There were a couple middle-class students there, but for the most part, a wide swath of that student body came from affluent backgrounds. So just the things they were referencing, things they bought, places they'd been, things they'd done. I hadn't broached any of that yet. That kind of made me a little bit nervous. Top five, 10% of the class, geniuses, right? So you're in the company of actual geniuses. And then the re- the remainder have a history of just academic success and being really smart and being really hardworking. And so I knew there's no way I'm going to distinguish myself with a group like this because you look around, it's just wall-to-wall talent. And then third, as you got to talk to people, you really got to see what their priorities were. And it was stuff that I just hadn't thought of. Some of them wanted to be entrepreneurs. Some of them wanted to go to the social impact sector, investment banking, consulting. They'd already been doing case interviews and, 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 and they'd been prepping case studies. Once again, I was really behind the eight ball there. So there was the culture shock. I don't need to tell you that there are very few minorities in the program. A lot of these people had privileged backgrounds, but the thing that struck me is that they were all really open. And I said to myself, well, I was busy trying to read cases and learn the material. They were really focused on the networking piece and the getting a job piece. And I, I started really thinking to myself, I said, I'm not going to distinguish myself. I'm barely surviving. You know what? I think I'm just going to become a sponge and learn their ways. And so I made it my goal to understand everything that they've done to get to this point and to see how they interact. And I say this, it's a science experiment, but for me, it was a thought experiment because I was, and I say this without shame or, you know, without embarrassment, I was easily the poorest person there, easily. And I thought I was doing pretty well for myself. But once again, they moved the uh, window on what success looked like for me. I got that benefit as well. But as I got to know them, I realized, I said, man, wow, some of them from a very young age, at any point that an academic deficiency or weakness presented itself, their parents would hire just a performance, an academic performance coach or uh, a private tutor and just build them up. So they spent their life mitigating all of the weaknesses in their applications, mitigating any weaknesses they might have had. You know, that's something we don't normally think to do or may not have the means to or the opportunity exists to do. A lot of them had prep schools in common. We can talk about that all day. Some of them, jobs waiting. Some of them were really well connected. And so I said, man, I just need to immerse myself and just see how they do things. I picked up a lot of their habits there. And, and, And Jim, you know my lifestyle these days. I credit it with everything I learned while I was on that campus. And in terms of transitioning, and and I say this with a little bit of embarrassment, I didn't want to be competing against people this smart 
And so I started trying to figure out ways to chart my own path forward. So I made a proactive decision to just stay within my career role. I wasn't going to be a career switcher, even though most people go to B school career switch, just because I figured I'd have less competition trying to do such a thing. Even going in with this mindset, intellectual curiosity, you can learn anything, et cetera. When the stakes are ramped up and you're around people that talented, there's still an intimidation factor there. And what I say is embrace it and just learn from them as much as you can. And because my commitment to quote unquote learning their ways really set the tone for what came next for me. Was there any point that you were hit with what they call imposter syndrome? And if so, how did you navigate through that? Day one. I, uh-huh. I said to myself, well, I can't, and, and I, I said this very pridefully, I can't be around all the rich kids. I'm going to go hang out with the veterans because there's a there's always a, a significant veteran contingent in B-School. But then I realized all the veterans had been officers in their prior careers, whereas I was an enlisted grunt. I was talking to them and you're talking to people who graduated from the Naval Academy. And so the whole time you're listening to their stories, you're like, man, I haven't done any of this stuff. What am I doing here? I, I lucked out on a test and that got me the opportunity to be around people who've been this accomplished all their lives. So definitely I I felt like an imposter. So the second part is pretty fascinating. I'm sure you probably picked up on this, but as a person listening to your story, you talked about when students who are academically sound are faced with an obstacle, how the parents would usher in and find someone that would coach them to mitigate whatever that gap was. But it's interesting because you talked about getting into that environment, learning what you could from a culture that you didn't necessarily grow up in. And then you started doing the same thing, right? You started looking at, so you said, okay, I'm going to stay in the same vertical because I knew there was less competition. So that was, that was mitigating a gap in and of itself. So you talk about these different mitigations. And so were you acutely aware of that as you were doing it? Or was that kind of hindsight, so to speak? Definitely hindsight, because things were just coming at you so fast. Before you know it, there were networking events. I'd never attended these sorts of things. People were already doing their prep for the career tracks that they wanted to get on. I was, I was learning the classroom material. No one said, hey, James, that's not really the focus. <laughs> your, your focus is to make sure you learn and know your classmates. I eventually turned the tide there because once again, I was curious about all these people. I, I had no problems asking for help. And another shortcut I discovered is that at, these, at some of these elite schools, students, who have, there are students who have trouble with some of the material. They spend an inordinate amount of time interacting with their professors going to professor hours or going to after hours. I had never done that in undergrad. And so that was mind blowing to me. And I had no problem reaching out to professors and have them hold my hand through the process to you know get me up to speed. Yeah. And so those are certain tricks that get applied or certain hacks that get applied that you may not have known because who would have told you? One of the things that's worth mentioning, and it's striking to me that it keeps coming up in various conversations that we have, is that we often frame our journey And our path and our trajectory and all these sort of things in large or small degrees to external expectations. And that creates an unnecessary level of pressure. Simon Sinek has a point that he makes about the infinite game, where it's not us versus somebody else. It's us versus ourselves. And how can we iteratively improve on what's important to us? I think one of the things that's striking to me, James, when you're talking is that I feel the weight of how you perceived everybody else around you and your ability to measure up to some degree. And I might be paraphrasing and putting words in your mouth. And I think it's important to one, call out that, hey, somebody like James looking at his background is, oh my God, this guy's got nothing to worry about. Everybody has those doubts and it's important to reorient yourself and say, look, I'm not in competition with all these other people. I'm in competition with myself on the race that I want to run. 
the question becomes, what race are you running? Are you running somebody else's race or are you running your own race? And that's a message that's important for everybody to think about. You're running your own race on your own terms. So pick what's important to you and do that versus what everybody else tells you is important. I say this over and over that the sessions that we have are about you. And so sometimes when they start talking about like different dynamics outside of them, I start to ask the question, how much of it can they control? How much of it should they be worrying about? Can they control or should we be worrying about and talking about how you can be more effective? And so it's exactly what you're talking about, that really it's you focusing in on you. And oftentimes it's very easy for us right, to focus outwards because we think that we have the ability to shift and shape and change these things. When we hear stories like James's story, it becomes so critical that we can listen about how, you know, amazing his journey is and has been. And yet he's saying, look at all these others that like he saw, but he was able to, to glean those different observations and use them as hacks for him to move where he wants to be. Ultimately, this is leading to the best hack that I learned or the best piece of advice that I got while I was in business school. One of my best friends there, she made sure to tell me, you have to understand everyone seems as if they know exactly what they're doing and they've got it figured. Many of them have a predefined map and they're just sticking to that. So a lot of them are just going to be very rigid in their thinking. You have the opportunity to be a little more flexible and take what comes at you. And so that gave me some more resolve. And then she said, here's what I do. And here's what's helped me get to you know, where I am. I thought I was a polyglot speaking three, four. She speaks seven languages. So just to give you an idea of how she's master chunking, she said, try to just focus on winning the next day. And what I mean by winning the day, you wake up something that you didn't quite understand yesterday, try to reinforce it today and, and pat yourself on the back after you've learned it and do that every single day. Go in and say, I'm going to win just today. It's not a marathon. It definitely is not. You're going to end up switching careers multiple times over the course of your life. Offers will materialize out of nowhere. There's a lot more of your story to tell. So just try to focus on winning the day. And that's what I try to apply when I'm learning a new role or when I'm learning a new process. I try to make sure I improved on what I did the day before. And those tiny incremental improvements over time compound in effectiveness. To this day, I, I send her a Christmas card every year for just putting that into me. As long as you focus on winning the day, you can build yourself into a better version over time without worrying about what roadmap you need to be on, what the competition looks like. This is a nerd alert. But there's a great book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Absolutely one of my favorites, but it, it, it absolutely underscores what you're talking about, taking those things and making them individual mini goals that you attack in order to get to that point. And that's how you get to being better today than you were the day before. As you think about what you just described, how has that informed your ability or capacity to uh, build effective teams? I'd never been in, in a, any official leadership capacity, my professional career up to that point. But when I was in the military, I did learn you know, some solid lessons about how teams are run the most effectively. And, and in previous episode, I walked to the different types of leaders that I saw, but what I saw being the most effective were the leaders who convinced you to work for the team rather than just towards the mission. Obviously, everyone in the military is mission-oriented going in. But if your goal is ensuring everyone else on your team is well-supported, you will hit your goals at rates unseen. And that is my primary leadership principle, making people work for the person next to them, making people want to sacrifice for the person next to them. Now, it's easy to say that, but we all know that in corporate environments, they'll tell you, yeah, your family, you're this, you're that. 
But in reality, they're racking and stacking you at the end of the year, comparing you to everyone else. So there is a sense of competition there. They're rating you, et cetera. And so as a leader, it's your responsibility to make them understand that you will be the gatekeeper for the team so that those corporate politics don't ruin the chemistry that you're trying to build. And, and to do that, you have to show legitimacy. You have to do things that you have to sign things that you're willing to do. You have to jump in when needed. You have to do the things that will make them want to run through a wall, not only for you, but for their teammates. When you get to that point, that's when your team will be clicking on all cylinders. I like to ensure that we're all cross-trained to the point of comprehension, everyone else's role. So if someone's out, there's an emergency, hey, I'll take care of this for you. You got me next time. And you build those habits within the team, you'll find that you'll have less turnover. You'll have a lot more cohesion. You'll have people who turn down transfers or who want to stay on with the team longer than the needed because they understand that the environment out there isn't nearly as supportive as what they're getting here. And, and so just getting them to that point becomes your priority. And fortunately, it's having applied this in my last two stops. I've seen it in action. I've seen it work. I've seen the glowing reviews. And yes, of course, I've benefited professionally. I was in my head chuckling because I 100% agree with you in terms of as you're building teams. And I can think about this one experience that I had where I had taken on a team. One of the senior VPs asked a question of me. I was uh, managing uh, a role that was responsive to the sales force. And you know that the sales force pretty much runs it. I couldn't answer the question. And it was because one of the employees would annually go home to India. And because of the distance, they would go home for the full 30 days of their PTO and was the only person that could answer the question. And so when you started talking about the cross training, that was one of the first things that I put in place was that we wanted to be able to cross skill folks so that it would be easier and there was some resistance, but I helped them to understand that being cross-trained actually was a better. But one of the things that you talked about on the leadership role, not necessarily being a, a positional role per se, right? That, that you're, you have more of an expanded scope of what leadership is. I, mean, I, I like to make fun of the fact that when you're in business school, you take all these leadership courses and you walk through these cases and say, oh, hypothetically, here's what I do. If I were in place and professors pick the quote unquote best answers, I stayed very true to that particular model. And I had some credibility coming in because I'd seen it work out in the field and I'd seen it work with just very diverse teams. You know, I was with country boys from Mississippi and Chicanos from LA on the same squad getting stuff done. And that credibility enabled me to push through these classes and share those experiences and be shown a, a level of approval for it and, and, and some respect for that particular opinion. But of course, there, there are tactical leadership bits that you get in business school that are very important as well. You learn one of the important things is learning how to manage upward. Again, something I never considered doing. And because my school is basically a consultant academy, one of the tricks that I, I learned is you always want it to work in terms of options, providing options to leadership that they can move. But of course, you want the data and the evidence to support the best answer. And so you're serving as the neck to get the head to make the decision that to turn in the direction that you want it to turn. In. So when you approach it that way, I said, oh, wow, this is amazing. I'd always been very insular with teams that I was on. And I didn't realize the impact of managing upward sorts of resources so it opens up to you and the sorts of additional opportunities it opens up. The person who climbs the ladder the fastest isn't the smartest. Not by any means. And it's not and it's not necessarily just the one with the most EQ. It's the one who can strategically realize the best places to add value preemptively. Right. If you're doing that consistently, you'll be identified as, as a climber. It's amazing when you think about how much leadership training, I'm doing the air quotes for those of us that can't see this, how little we talk about managing upwards and how critical that is. And that has to be a necessary part of your 
strategy as a leader or someone who is aspiring to be a leader. It's, it's extremely important. And I love the example that you gave of the you're the neck trying to guide the direction uh, that you need the head to go. So that's a, it's a great call out. That's a good point. You mentioned, James, it's not necessarily the most talented or the person with the most EQ that advances the fastest. It's probably the person that can look at an enterprise and identify what spots they can add the most value, the fastest or some version of that. So my question to that is, how do you build that ability to see the field? It all comes with winning the day. First, you learn the role, master the role to the extent that you can. And you have to understand the organizational interactions that come with the role. Once again, and so instead of being inwardly focused, you have to be outwardly focused and see what the consequences of things you're turning in. You have to understand your organizational interactions. You have to understand how feasible certain things are and, and you just have to have a regular eye for process. One of the things on my bucket list was getting the PMP. And so that gave me a set of guardrails, a guiding post for figuring out how to take a project you know, from start to finish and understanding how to identify needs, assess what stakeholders wanted. And that's another place where you'll find that networking helps because your constant interactions with stakeholders, they will reveal their problems to you in no time and they will welcome any help that you can offer or they'll help to welcome any improvements that you can introduce to a process that's frustrating. And so once again, that intellectual curiosity, the tendency to network, those things are what's going to help you look outwardly and see what problems you can identify and, and, and work on ways to fixing them. And of course, it's one thing to, to, to have a positive attitude and be willing to do something, but you actually have to go out and build certain skill sets that'll help you along. And so for me, that PMP has probably been as valuable as the MBA, not to short sell the MBA, but it's helped establish that guiding vision that enables me to identify negative trends, spot problems, and then go work with people to fix them. As good as all of that is, and it's legit great stuff. If you keep going down this track, James, you're going to have LB and my nerd cards revoked. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say this right now. Oh, I'm James Daverman. I got a Tuck MBA and, but wait, there's more. I don't feel that's enough. So I'm going to go get a project management certification, man. Get off my show. <laughs> no, that's, that's awesome, dude. That's uh, that's fantastic. That's something I didn't even know until you just mentioned it. So it, it speaks directly to one of the things that LB and I talk about all the time, which is the value of continuous improvement. So the things that you've mentioned so far, winning the day, leadership isn't defined by positional authority. It's continuous improvement. These are all great individual career hacks, but you're not just an individual contributor. You've built this career trajectory that's got you on the CFO track. You don't go that track without establishing a track record for building highly effective teams and high performance teams. When you look at that through your career and even into the role that you're in now, what are some of the things that you focus on when it comes to building those highly effective teams? I've been in, in a new role for the last four months, so I can speak to this just because I've actually had to go through the process of doing it again. Names will be withheld to you know protect the innocent. But the first thing you want to do is um, just get to know your teammates and get to know the, your direct reports. Just get to know them. Your first call should also be, should always be a social call. You want to get a sense of who they are as a person, what drives them, what motivates them. And then you can dig in a little further and ask what they want to accomplish most being on this team and within this particular role. Once you understand what their motivations and their goals are, you can then tailor a style that'll accommodate them. We tend to overcomplicate leadership, but if you do these three things, 
you at least get them at, you get them working at a good level of high proficiency. And so the first thing is you want to make sure that they're properly resourced. You want to make sure that they have what they need to be successful. And so how would you know? You ask, hey, is there any kind of software that would make this a little bit easier for you? Or is there a wish list that you have? What would you need to make this job the most fun experience that you had? Or what would you need to accomplish things even faster than you do now? Or what would you need to improve your productivity? People will tell you. They're very open about that. So you make sure they're properly resourced. Second, once they've demonstrated a particular level of proficiency, it's your duty to stretch them. You want to give them stretch projects. And I know you have leaders who like to basically frame extra work as a wonderful learning opportunity in a stretch project. No, you have to be genuine, right? That's the third point. You have to be genuine with them at all times. I don't have to use any psychological trick. Or I don't have to use any play games with the people I work with. We're all adults. If you're extremely genuine with them, you'll gain their trust. And once that happens, you have these three things. They understand, hey, if I need something, I'll get it. Once that's in motion, you've got a strong foundation. That's good stuff. I, I was literally just writing down that stuff as you were talking because it it gives a great framework for something that I'll probably write about in the upcoming days. So that's great. You said that there's two or three things that you just listed off. I wrote down six. So here's what I wrote down. Get to know the team. What's the vision that each person at the desk has for themselves? Tailor the plan to fit the individual vision. Make sure that they're properly resourced. Establish trust across all levels of the team. And then define stretch projects. That's my list of six. What do you feel is the, the most important thing out of that list that you have to do first for all other things to flow smoothly? I'm torn between establishing trust, obviously, but that's more of a gradual process. But that should always be the end game. Um, they should always know that you're approaching them from in as genuine a way as possible. But defining their vision, I think, because you're working together with them and you're giving them buy-in, not only into what the team's trying to accomplish, but you're also letting them know that they'll be able to hit their own personal goals as we hit these team milestones. And that's a tactic generals use. Giving them that buy-in, that, that emotional investment will make sure that you get the best out of them. When someone knows that they're going to be held accountable to something and they own something, and that they're doing it with a specific goal in mind. And that's better than just spinning your wheel. You'll get the best performance when they understand what the stakes are and they understand that they're not just going to be sacrificed for the sake of the team, that they're going to benefit as well from uh, the development that comes through the projects that you give them that will also end up helping the team. You're chaining it together in, a, in as positive a way as possible. That's a great point, James. The trust part is critical, but I think you build that over time. And one of the biggest catalysts to help you accelerate that trust building process is to meet people where they are and understand their vision and then build a roadmap that ties their personal professional vision to the organizational mission. Again, yeah. I couldn't have said that any better, Jim. That'll, yeah, be, uh, that'll be $595 for <laughs> that piece of wisdom. I, I would say that one of the things that you also talked about is that what you're saying builds that authenticity right out of the gate. Right. And that authenticity is what cultivates that trust. And research shows that's the number one element that people, whether in any organization, it is trust is one of the first, if not the first and most in most research that says that's what people care about the most. And so that whole idea and notion of authenticity becomes a critical element. And you're saying key in on what's important to them. And what is the mutual outcome? And then I think they get a sense of folks will get us. We, we know this, right? As human beings, we know when someone is authentic and when someone is out, when someone wants something, air quotes again. That's really a critical element, the whole idea and notion of uh, trust. Yeah, uh, they actually don't need to like you. They need to like you to a certain extent. 
but you don't have to be best friends. Right. Actually, some of the feedback that I've always gotten consistently in my reviews is that I tend to be a little bit aloof at times. Part of it is because I just trust the team because what I do is I ensure that they see that I'm holding myself accountable. Our first official meeting, there's a set of 10 rules that I run through and I let them know to challenge me if at any point any of these rules get broken. And trust me, they're happy to do it. You, know, you might have an off day, but James, rule number eight. And you're like, oh, okay, yes, you're right. And so that's my shortcut for coming in and being authentic. The fact that they're seeing that I'm holding my own self account and they will be happy to challenge you when needed as well. All right. So you piqued my interest. If you don't mind sharing, what are those 10 rules? All right. I'll run through them very quickly. Rule number 10, fewer meetings, shorter meeting. I don't want to use meetings as a method of oversight. I immediately want to know. I, I, I just want to show we'll have one meeting at the beginning of the week, one meeting at the end of the week, 30 minutes, talk about our agenda for the week do a review at the end of the week or preview of the following week. And that's it. Now I do like to schedule one-on-ones just to see how their development is tracking. Mm -hmm. And and that is your opportunity for a gripe session or anything else on your mind. But yeah, I'm not going to use meetings as a method of oversight. I don't believe in that at all. And I think it actually erodes trust if you're doing it too often and they start to feel micromanaged. Number nine, instructions will always be clear and detailed. I'll never give them anything that sounds so vague that we have to do a hundred turns on the deliverable before we finally get it right. And I finally realized what I was looking for. They will always know specifically what success looks like for any assignment that we have. Number eight, let's keep spreadsheets simple when possible. I'm an Excel geek as much as the next person. That's actually something else I learned uh, in B-School, a lot of Excel tricks because I was working alongside investment bankers and et cetera. It's just funny that I'm pushing, keeping them simple here for the sake of keeping them simple. I like to aggregate the work that the team does as a group. And sometimes I'll have to explain things to executives. If I'm wasting time auditing a template, it's going to kill some of the value that I can add. And this makes it easier for us to cross train. And so that is why I say when possible, the spreadsheet will be simple. Sometimes I know we'll have some complex ones, but this is more for the purpose of standardizing and putting some uniformity behind what we do. We can pick things up quickly whenever there's a little bit of adversity. Number seven, please take all of your vacations. I've worked in environments where I was pressured either not to take vacations or to take them only at specific times or to only use a specific portion. No, you deserve your full rewards for a job well done. And so I will approve. Obviously, I'll make a caveat that, yeah, if it's budget time, we'll need all hands on deck. Of course, if there are emergencies or anything, completely understand. And that also is the reason why I want us to cross-train so much in case this comes up. And so this all connects as well in their minds. Take all all of your vacations. Number six, you'll get guaranteed feedback on demand. One of the things that drove me nuts in my earlier career was when a supervisor or a boss would bring up a mistake that I made four or five months ago in my review and say, oh yeah, there was this whole thing from several months back. Yeah. And I said, you waited six months to tell me about this? How's that helping me develop? You're punishing me for it on the back end. And so anytime you want to know how you're doing or if you need feedback on something, send me a ping, come into the open door office, pull me aside, however you want to handle it. But I'll always make sure I have feedback for you when you need it. Number five, we have no FaceTime requirements. Once again, we're adults. I trust you all to do your job. I trust you all to do your jobs. If there's anything that I need to review, send it to me. But if you've got to run an errand or if there are childcare issues, people have families, if there are things you need to do, completely understand. But you're not going to have to wake me out of the office. Number four, uh, mistakes that you fix in time won't be held against you during reviews. We all make mistakes. As long as you're focusing on winning the day, which is something that I stress ad infinitum, as long as you're following that model, you won't be repeating the same mistakes. 
So as long as you can identify it, fix it and take care of it, as far as I'm concerned, it never happened. And I won't wait six months to tell you about that mistake in your review and, and ding you over it. Number three, you will remain autonomous. You are in charge of whatever I hand you. When people feel empowered to complete a task, they put everything into it. If it's just something that they receive and have to rubber stamp, it won't get nearly the same amount of care and attention than if it were their own baby. So your project is your own baby. You're autonomous. Give me the best version. We'll get together and iterate, obviously, at certain points. But for the most part, you're your own project manager. Number two, I don't play favorites. And that goes back to the feedback I've received about being aloof. It's really a way just for me to treat everyone the same, uh, because I know I've taken classes on unconscious bias. I've done the unconscious bias training, and, and you can't eliminate it completely. So I try to be as objective and dispassionate as possible. And I do that by distributing everything as equally as I can based on your interest and ability. If you show an active interest in something, you're really good at it. You step up and demand it. It's yours. And number one, you will always receive credit for your work. I've had bosses throw the team under the bus. I've had bosses take credit for things that the, the entire team done, or not just take credit for, because obviously the company knows, hey, the team did it. But if you're not identifying people who are making really specific contributions, I think it sells their efforts short a little bit and it might build some resentment over time. So I tell them, if, if you create a process that we implement, if you create, if you fix a template, format something a certain way that's more appealing, you know, I'll always say, oh, by the way, yeah. Such and such contributed this to the project. So I just wanted to call attention to it because it helped us accomplish X, Y, Z. And those 10 rules, and I tell them, challenge me if I'm ever breaking them. And so that is an easy way to at least get them to open up to trusting, to the idea of trusting. I'll say this right now. That is freaking gold, dude. That <laughs> is so much gold. Oh my God. It is money. <laughs> I was messaging LB while you were saying that needs to be set to the 10 dual commandments from a song from Hamilton. I don't know if either of you catch that reference, but yeah. there needs to be like a business version of that needs to be put to song with rule number one, always give credit for your work. J James Daverman's 10 business <laughs> commandments. Yeah, I, I, I expect royalties off of that when you create it, James. I should have trademarked this stuff before. That is so much gold. So how does that inform what you're doing now with your teams? What's the impact been? Walk us through that and how that shapes the initiatives that you're taking on in your current role. I'm running three concurrent projects right now. And the fact that I'm able to just take my hat off on one and put it on the other the fact that I'm able to switch effortlessly between them and make presentations and provide updates, that list has, has made my life easier in some ways because the team you know, has really embraced me over the last you know, couple of months. And there are also ancillary benefits that come from this sort of trust. Less turnover, obviously. No one's filing complaints against you. There's a lot of, there's strong chemistry. People volunteer for stuff instead of being voluntold and et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it just makes things more efficient. I always go through this set of 10 during my first official team meeting to set the tone. And then I tell them, and then the unofficial rule is that you all hold me accountable to these 10. So throw that on, on, on the back end. There's a couple of things that, that jump out to me were one was that, so oftentimes having a framework is also uh, a cheat code or a hack or whatever you want to call it, that you're able to take it and just make these slight pivots, which is what you're doing and what you're describing. The other thing is that the 10 overwhelmingly speak to what you are doing for other human beings. And I think that can't be underestimated, right? When people talk about 
whatever title it, it is this week about the great resignation or whatever you want to call it. These are elements that are coming out that are flushing out from research about why people want to meet, move, why people want to leave. And oftentimes it has much to do with their rethinking. And I think oftentimes a framework like this, you have a shot at someone coming in saying, hey, I have an open door policy with James. Let me go talk to him. And maybe it doesn't change the trajectory of whether or not they stay or whether or not they leave. But I do believe that you will build a team that would allow you to accomplish your goals. And so we talk moving faster, right? And accelerating outcomes. And this is absolutely one that that does that. And it's obvious that you put some thought into it. One of my favorite concepts around what you've been saying is this whole sense of intentionality that you have around most everything that you do. Yeah. Th- uh, thanks for saying that. Uh, it's, but really the goal for me is always uh, unit cohesion. I, and, and quite honestly, I would never have even considered any of this stuff if I hadn't saw, if I hadn't seen what two, two amazing leaders that I served under in the military had done. And that directly informed. I just try to pay it forward. How are you operationalizing that or aligning that with mission, vision, values at the organizations that you've been in? How does that come into the equation of taking that 10 rules that you have and making it custom for the environment that you're in? It's funny. I actually haven't thought of that. Things are in flux because we're working from home. We're on Zoom calls. And we're just getting hit with, we're in a changed environment right now. So we're getting hit with all these projects. So we're reacting. But I would say in terms of connecting this to like a company's values, that to me isn't necessarily the main priority. I don't mean that just in a negative way. I always like to say, yes, your mission is the mission, but your mission is also the team. And so as long as you dotted line, your loyalty to the team, the mission will always get accomplished. All I want to see is good work get executed and and the rest seemingly takes care of itself, but I haven't really considered. And also, um, you know, fairly new in role. It's not like I have the, I don't say the authority. It's not like I have a mandate. Hey, James, align your team with our value. They were very thorough in vetting me with personality assessments and things like that to make sure that I was a cultural fit, which is something that the company prioritizes. So I'm fortunate enough to be working with a team of people who are already very well aligned with the sort of personalities that the company thinks will be most beneficial in, it, uh, in its employees. And third, when I took the job, I took it based contingent on the fact that my boss was also going to mentor me because she's one of the most impressive women I've ever seen. Her background is just super important, Harvard Business School and all the fixings that come with that. And knowing that she's aligned, that we have that vision aligned, and she's basically freed me up to implement these things. And so that ability of self-guided leadership, that understanding that you are autonomous and that you are your own project manager, that value is, is instilled within the company already. And so I'm just benefiting from it. Don't be afraid to ask your, your potential manager or your hiring manager to mentor you if you hit it off or they've they've got a background that amazes you or, or just based on the interviews that you've conducted, you just really like that person because that's really what you'll be to the role. It wasn't, yeah, I, Lord knows I did not want to move to San Francisco, Yeah, but I really wanted to work with this woman and her peers. That's another great point. No matter where you are in your career journey, no matter where you are on the organizational chart, you should always be intentional in seeking out other opportunities to grow. And if nothing else, point out your blind spots so that you can continuously improve. So that's another great call out. So that wraps up 
part two of the James Daverman story. And that was just absolutely phenomenal. There's so much gold in there. I have at least five or six different things that I can write about. So James, thanks for hopping on and uh, thanks for bearing with me uh, being a little bit of a fanboy on your story. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, happy to be the guinea pig here. And I think you guys are doing great things because this is my just cause is making sure that we level the playing field in terms of access to information. And so releasing this out to your network, I think this has potential to be a game changer. And so I I commend you you both for this mission you've undertaken to once again, fix that asymmetrical problem that we're having with the way information is distributed, because we've watched the people in the know feast over time. And we've had to struggle with things like imposter syndrome and, you know, lack of access and, and learning things just really late if we learn them at all. And so this, I think, will correct for many of those issues. Yeah, I couldn't yeah. have said it any. I couldn't have said it any better. I'm I'm super excited for this uh, for this to drop and and to get the feedback because I'm 100 percent confident that folks will benefit from your story, from your shares. I mean, we talk about moving faster, further in our careers, and I think without question that our listeners are going to benefit from your story. So we are absolutely appreciative. Thanks again for for hopping on. As we wrap up, make sure uh, you check out the episode on all your favorite podcast platforms. Definitely leave us feedback. One of the things that we are going to be doing with all of our featured guests, if there are additional questions or additional insights that you'd like to dive deeper in, definitely let us know in the feedback. You can find us on all the appropriate social channels, but especially LinkedIn. Definitely one of the things that we're trying to do is build a community of leaders So you certainly want to reach out to James, connect with him on LinkedIn. You can reach out to us on LinkedIn and let's, let's be intentional about how we can move everybody's career further, faster, because that's why we're doing it. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks for listening. Like, subscribe, uh, download, share. There's going to be a lot of gold that comes out of these episodes, especially from all of these accomplished featured guests that we have. Thanks again, James, for, for coming on the show. And with that, we are out. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.